Our sermon text for today is taken from the book of Revelation, chapter 5, verses 6 through 14. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor, and glory, and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. And Lord, that's where we want to be now. We want to be on our faces, as it were, in our hearts, saying, Amen. You are glorious. Amen, you are powerful. Amen, you are wise. Amen, you are bountiful. And we are thankful. Amen. Yes. So, Lord, I pray that you'd come and help me in this last part of worship where we exult over the word. That you would fill me and fill us so that there's a transaction that happens here by your word, your spirit. So that we hear you through your word and are changed and treasure you and delight in you and submit to you and follow you and are conformed to your image and therefore echo your sound and reflect your excellence in the world. Oh God, let these moments not be in vain. Come and do a powerful thing among us, I pray. And in our church, Lord, we're after some new days, some new things. Let's come. Work them by the power of your word. It never goes forth in vain. Accomplish saving, changing, transforming things here, I ask, through Christ. Amen. My aim this morning is to move from the experience of the 60s to...
to the Word of God and the work of Christ in the Word of God to Bethlehem. That's the movement from the 60s to the book of Revelation to Bethlehem. With a view, I pray, of stirring you up to care about racial diversity and racial harmony in the church and in the nation. I pray that you will want, you will long for, you will work for more racially diverse worship and life here at Bethlehem, rooted in biblical truth and Christ-like love with a view to displaying the infinite value of Christ and his sufferings. So, we begin in Birmingham, Alabama. April 11, 1963, in a motel room, room 30 of the Gaston Motel. I was 17 in Greenville, South Carolina, 350 miles away, watching it all unfold on television. Martin Luther King in the room, Ralph Abernathy, Wyatt Walker, Fred Shuttlesworth, facing a huge decision. Do we carry through with tomorrow's demonstration on Good Friday, downtown Birmingham, peaceful, nonviolent, when the sheriff, Bull Connor, has issued us a state-sanctioned order not to march. There are reasons to march. Big reasons. Reasons in my town, reasons in every city. In the South especially, but not only in the South. Segregation was law and practice. Seats on the bus, schools, parks, lunch counters, restrooms, drinking fountains. If you didn't grow up in those days, you can hardly imagine going to Cresses and having two drinking fountains. White colored. What in the world does that say? So there were reasons to march. Peacefully and nonviolently. Well, they made the decision and they decided to march. Fifty were willing to go to jail. They knew they would. They walked. They met Bull O'Connor, knelt down at the rope, and were all taken by the seats of their pants and put in paddy wagons and taken to jail. Tuesday, the following Tuesday, that was Good Friday. Now, the following Tuesday... 16th of April, 1963, somebody gives Martin Luther King in jail a copy of the Birmingham News. In it was a letter written by and signed by eight white Jewish and Christian clergymen from across Alabama criticizing King for the march. And in response to that letter, he wrote 
Some accounts say on toilet paper and in the margins of the newspaper and on scraps that he had. What has come to be called Letter from Birmingham Jail. One biographer called it the most eloquent, learned expression of the goals and philosophy of the nonviolent movement ever written. And I want you to hear some of it. And why there's a holiday called Martin Luther King Day. He spoke to a generation and enraged thousands and inspired thousands. And today he enrages thousands and inspires thousands. In response to their statement, you should wait. You should be more patient. You don't need to be hasty, he wrote. As only he could write and speak. Perhaps it is easy for those who have never felt the stinging darts of segregation to say wait. But when you have seen vicious mobs lynch your mothers and fathers at will and drown your sisters and brothers at whim. When you have seen hate-filled policemen curse, kick and even kill your black brothers and sisters when you see the vast majority of your 20 million Negro brothers smothering in an airtight cage of poverty in the midst of an affluent society, when you suddenly find your tongue twisted and your speech stammering as you seek to explain to your six-year-old daughter why she cannot go to the public amusement park that has just been advertised on television and see tears welling up in her eyes when she is told that Fun Town is closed to colored children, and see ominous clouds of inferiority beginning to form in her little mental sky, and see her beginning to distort her personality by developing an unconscious bitterness toward white people, when you have to concoct an answer for your five-year-old son who is asking, Daddy, why do white people treat colored people so mean? When you take a cross-country drive and find it necessary to sleep night after night in the uncomfortable corners of your automobile because no motel will accept you. When you are humiliated day in and day out by nagging signs reading white and colored. When your first name becomes nigger and your middle name becomes boy, however old you are, and your last name becomes John, and your wife and your mother are never given the respected title of Mrs. When you are harried by day and haunted by night by the fact that you are a Negro, living constantly at tiptoe stance, never quite knowing what to expect next, and are plagued with inner fears and outer resentments, when you are forever fighting a degenerating sense of nobodiness, then you will understand why we find it difficult to wait. There comes a time when the cup of endurance runs over and men are no longer willing to be plunged into the abyss of despair. I hope, sirs, you can understand our legitimate and unavoidable impatience. Not only did they say, wait, they said he's an extremist, to which he wrote. Was not Jesus an extremist for love? Love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who despitefully use you and persecute you. Was not Amos an extremist for justice? Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness, like a never-flowing stream. 
Was not Paul an extremist for the Christian gospel? I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Was not Martin Luther an extremist? Here I stand, I cannot do otherwise, so help me God. And John Bunyan, I will stay in jail to the end of my days before I make a butchery of my conscience. And Abraham Lincoln, thus this nation cannot survive half slave and half free. And Thomas Jefferson, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. So the question is not whether we will be extremist, but what kind of extremist will we be? We be extremists for hate or extremists for love. And then came the call to the church. There was a time when the church was very powerful. In the time when the early Christians rejoiced at being deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of a popular opinion. It was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society. But the judgment of God is upon the church today as never before. If today's church does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authenticity, forfeit the loyalty of millions, and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century. That's a very good analogy, thermostat, thermometer. You got it, didn't you? Ask about now. Ask about the American mega church or the successful church. This one say. Ask about it. Is it a thermometer registering the temperature of the society with its own reflection of it? Or is it a thermostat which adjusts people's minds and hearts to bring the temperature of society to where it's supposed to be on various issues of morality and justice. Ask how we're doing today on that analogy. You can grow a church without the gospel. Bigness means nothing. In terms of faithfulness to God. In fact, it's easier to grow a church without the gospel. So don't be misled by what looked like evangelical successes all over the cities and all over the country. Don't be deceived. Get to the core of the matter. Is there truth? Is there love? Is there power from the Holy Spirit? Is there justice? Is there sacrifice? Is there Christ-like laying your life down kind of commitment to the nations near and far? It's a very living word. Somebody asked me afterwards, where can I get a copy of that? Well, here's the easiest thing. I have a little booklet. You go online, whatever search engine you have, and type in letter from Birmingham jail, and you'll get eight sites just like that, all of them printed. It's all over the Internet, so you don't need to be without it. You can read the whole 20 pages of that letter. I recommend you do it. Very few people could speak with such prophetic power as this man spoke and wrote.
That's the 60s. Let's go to the Bible. Now we go to a word that is absolutely authoritative. Martin Luther King's an echo. He was an imperfect echo. We all know that. So am I. Now let's go to the perfect word. Revelation chapter 5. And experience a sadness, first of all. It is a sad thing. Amazing sad. That precious, practical, powerful, life-changing doctrines can be blunted and hindered in their effect by becoming the center of controversy. So that we spend energy defending, arguing, disagreeing, instead of applying. And that's the case with the atonement of Jesus Christ. There's anything more massive in the universe and history than the death of the Son of God to accomplish what God designed to do in it. But there are so many who don't believe there was a particular design. So it is controversial to say, for example, not only did Jesus Christ, the Son of God, die so that Everyone died for everyone such that whosoever believes might not perish but have eternal life and died in such a way so that there was a divine design in the dying that purchased not only a free offer for everyone, but an effectual conversion for the bride of Christ, with whom he formed a marriage covenant. I wish I had time to defend it more than verse 9, which I think is a good defense. But I don't. And I want to simply apply it. If you believe that, he died for all, such that whosoever believes will not perish but have eternal life. And he died in such a way that there was an effectual design in his dying so that the new covenant promised by the blood of Jesus purchased the writing of the law on the hearts of the bride of Christ. And faith was purchased and conversion was purchased and the fullness was purchased and sanctification was purchased and justification was purchased and the whole thing was purchased for a particular people. If you believe that... The racial implications are huge. Which is what this verse is about. Revelation 5, 9. The racial implications of the definite atonement of Jesus. Let's read it. Verse 9. They sang a new song. This is a glimpse into heaven. A glimpse into the heart of God. A glimpse into the design of God in the death of his son, the Lamb. They sang a new song saying, worthy are you, referring to Jesus, the Lamb of God, worthy are you to take the book. The book refers to the unfolding of history. As the seals come off, the end times unfold. You can take them off. You're the Lord of history. You are worthy to take the book and to break its seals. Why? Why is he worthy to do this? For you were slain and purchased 
for God with your blood. Now I'm going to be very literal here. I'm going to leave out the direct object because there isn't one in the Greek. This is a remarkable thing. I'm going to come back to it in just a minute. There's no direct object in the text, which is why in the NASB it's in italics. You purchased for God from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, period. Notice what it does not say. It does not say that he purchased all individuals in every tribe and tongue and people and nation. It says he purchased from. He bought from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Now, the reason I stress this no direct object of the verb thing is this. It's like me saying, I'm going to go to the market. All right, say farmer's market. Too cold, it's not there. It'll be there a few months. You go to the farmer's market and you say to the person the next day, I spent a lot of money so that I could purchase from every booth. Period. Now, what's the point of that sentence? I didn't tell you what I bought. The point of that sentence is to underline, I went to every booth. I got something from every booth. That's what this sentence says. The point of this sentence is to correlate the price, which is infinite, and the every, in the sentence, every people, tongue, tribe, and nation. Before, in the next sentence, he clarifies what he bought. And what he bought was people. A people from every tribe and tongue. And so I don't want you to miss. I was asking myself, Lord, what is there anything in this text that gets at the this issue? I think the whole thing is about this issue, but is there anything? In, and I realized I was leaning so heavily on all my English translations, I didn't let the effect of that structure hit me. You were slain. And you purchased from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, period. And then comes, and you made them, now he tells us his people, them into kingdom and priests. But the first sentence is just infinite price, every tribe. Infinite price, every tribe. Infinite price, every race. Infinite Price every language, infinite price every ethnic group. In other words, racial diversity cost God an infinite price. That's the point. Fits perfectly in this morning's focus. It dictates this morning's focus. It's the word of God to us this morning. I paid my son's life to make it every, every. Every, that's why I paid it. No. If you believe that, if you see that in the text, like I see it in the text, implications follow. Let me mention four. Number one, God intends to have a people, not just from white or black or red or yellow, but every shade in between and every ethnic group and every language on the face of the earth. It's his goal. It's his intention. It's his design. There's a design in the atonement. 
There's a design in the slaying which is particular from peoples. And the shading of the bride is God's idea. No man, and not God in particular, is indifferent to the kind of bride he marries. God is not indifferent to the kind of bride his son marries, called the church. He's not indifferent about that. He does not leave that up to your free will to decide how colorful the bride will be. He purchases from every tribe the people who make up this bride. Because he, he cares about this bride infinitely. That she be perfect for his son forever. This is not our vote. We do not vote on whether the more blacks and more whites and more reds and more yellows in the bride, in the face of the bride. God decides that. And we yield. We believe. That's implication number one. Implication number two, there's tremendous unity Designed by God in the atonement for this bride. I see it in verse 10 where it says, You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Now think of this. He's got two images here. They're going to be rulers and they're going to be priests. So the bride, shuffling our images around here, is Made up of priests and made up of kings, queens. Now, this is absolute religious anarchy and chaos if the priests can't get along and minister in the same temple. If the kings are at war to have their own little kingdom. The, the clear implication is here, a house divided is going to fall. A priesthood divided is chaos and anarchy in the church. And who are the priests? Christians from every tribe, every race. Are the priests. There's a clear word here to us. This has got to come together. This has got to come together. You can't have a priesthood who won't live together in the same neighborhood. You can't have a priesthood who won't go to the same schools. You can't have a priesthood who won't marry each other. You can't. The design of the death of the Son of God is one priesthood serving side by side in the temple of God doing what? I'm getting ahead of myself here. I'll leave that one for just a minute. That's implication number two, unity. Number three, 
It cost an infinite price to get this, to buy this. This diversity and this harmony. That's what I'm using. I'm using racial diversity and racial harmony. We, we, we talk about racial harmony, but it's easy to talk about racial harmony if there's hardly anybody around of diversity. We gotta talk about racial diversity and working toward it and racial harmony as the form it's gonna take. Both of them were purchased. That's my argument. Both of them were purchased by the blood of Jesus. And now the third point is, it's infinite. That's an infinite price. There isn't a higher price conceivable than the death of the most perfect Son of God. You cannot conceive of a higher price to be paid for racial diversity than the death of Jesus. So, allow me to understate the conclusion. Racial diversity and harmony are important. And implication number four. Christ died... To purchase racial diversity and harmony for God. Underline, for God. Don't miss those two words in verse 9. You were slain. Jesus, you were slain. And you purchased for God with your blood from every tribe. Now I ask, what were they doing in the following verses? Verse 13, second half of the verse, they were saying, To him who sits upon the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept on saying, Amen, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. It's about God. Racial diversity was purchased by an infinite price for an infinitely valuable task called worship. So, what's it all about? What's history all about? What's the death of Christ all about? Why are there various races in the world? And why did Jesus die and pay an infinite price that he might gather representatives from all of those races? Why, why, why? And the answer is this. It is all aiming at the all-satisfying, everlasting, God-centered, Christ-exalting experience of many colored worship. I'll say it again. It is all aiming at the all-satisfying, Everlasting, God-centered, Christ-exalting experience of joyful, many-colored worship. That's the meaning of history. That's the meaning of the atonement. That's the meaning of this church. Oh, we're not obedient. Now we come to Bethlehem in closing. Four things quickly. One, I'll say it again. Since it cost God the death of his son and cost Jesus his life to pay for racial diversity in the bride of Christ, this is important. Very important. on the agenda of those who love the blood of Jesus and why it was shed. Second implication. 
Will it therefore cost us nothing? You might reason that way. Well, if it costs Jesus everything, he paid it. I don't have to. doesn't cost us anything. We receive it as a gift. Period. Problem with that is it doesn't fit the Bible. Test your logical inferences with Bible inferences. And you will find your brain inadequate often. The Bible says, because I'm going to Jerusalem, take up your cross. Get it? Not because I'm going to Jerusalem, you go another way. The Bible says, because I suffer, you will suffer. In other words, if it costs Jesus his life, it's going to cost us to pursue this. Big time. There'll be many of you who have a day like this, but focus on racial reconciliation, great all nations choir, cool music, powerful word from Revelation, and you'll say, yes, and you'll... You'll go for it, and then somebody will get in your face and criticize you because they didn't like the way you said it. And you say, oh, oh, okay, if that's the way you want to be, I just won't play this game. I won't do this. I thought you, I thought you wanted me to participate in this racial reconciliation, and you talked to me like that. I'd go home and watch television. There's millions of evangelicals with skin about a... My vocabulary is not scientific enough here. I want a very, very small measurement. I mean, like millionths of an inch, I'm talking. Okay, whatever you said. Evangelicals have skin about that thick. Wah, wah, wah. Wine, wine, wine. Oh, poor me. I got criticized at church. Look, I took it after the first service. Big deal. What do you expect? So, we're on a mighty long journey. You're going to stay on it? You're going to jump. Because you get a rough road. Or bad word. Or somebody misunderstands you. And you tried to be all that you thought they wanted you to be. And they didn't like the way you did it. And then you just give up and go home. Play, play, play. Safe to play. With your little computer. Don't do that. Let's get thick skinned. Let's get forgiving. Let's return what? What is 70 times 7? Do the math. 490? It's just a general statement. Lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of forgivings. Love covers a multitude of stupid statements. So, come on. Let's get thick skinned, let's get tough, let's get tender on the inside, tough on the outside, let's last, let's do the long, obedient, in the same direction, to use Eugene Peterson's great title. Number three, let's do something specific, and that means just taking your insert and do something with it. Read something, read something. Oh, I'm so glad. Once a year, I'm forced at least to get into this. And now I'm doing this racial reconciliation seminar on Wednesday nights and forced to do a lot more. And when you get in, you get changed. When you get into the Bible and start reading it through the glasses of other people or you just let the Bible talk to you in through your own glasses, you get changed. So just do something. Last, last thing, we're done. 
Can anything good come out of Birmingham? Yes, and not just out of the jails. The most recent book, I think it's the most recent, nothing more recent than this. It's been on the market for a month or two. A mighty long journey. It's called Reflections on Racial Reconciliation. You know who edited this book? Timothy George, White, Robert Smith, Black. They both teach at Beeson in Birmingham. The title is significant. I close with this. A Mighty Long Journey. It comes from an African-American prayer chant. A mighty long journey. A mighty long journey. But I'm on my way. Mm-hmm. It's a mighty long journey. But I'm on my way. Mm-hmm. So that's where we are, right? Hardly begun. Some feel. Others feel. Oh, you're making some strides. It's a long journey. You know where we're going? Revelation 5, 9. Perfect. Question is, how much can we have now? How much can we have now of Revelation 5, 9? And the answer is, lots more than we got. And so would you stay on the road? Would you get on the road? Would you work at it? And so when you leave now, don't go to the book table. There's nothing there. And go to the bookstore. Go to each other. Find a new person, any color, and say, wasn't it good to be here this morning? Hard word. How do you feel about it? Bless you. Let's stand to pray. Oh, God, this is so important. God, this is life. This is life. You're about a lot of things in the world. A lot of things. So be about it in our church. Lord, make us better. Take us on the journey. Mercy, patience with us, oh God, please, and with each other. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you the fullest, deepest, most racially diverse shalom Possible for fallen sinners justified by grace like us. And all the people said, Amen. You're dismissed.